1: Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: Everything Compliance is now the award winning Everything Compliance having won the top talk show in podcasting award by w 3 We return to our regular format this week with the quartet of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen with Tom Fox Hosting. We take up a variety of topics that have caught the interest of our panelists this week and have a lot of fun with some current events, some not-so-current events, and some great stories. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Everything Compliance. All this Shoutouts and rants and more on this episode of Everything Compliance. Before we get to today's episode, we're going to have a quick word
2: from our sponsor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
3: Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the award-winning Everything Compliance. Today, we have the quartet of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen. Jonathan Armstrong, our friends at Lloyd's, had a pretty big announcement that uh, you and your colleagues have written about. Um, What does Lloyd's have to do with um, data privacy and data protection?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, It's um, uh, really the announcement is in the uh, cybersecurity data breach space. And I think it's going to be of much wider implication than people might think at first blush. So basically what Lloyds has said is that it's effectively altering the uh, cybersecurity policy rules to exclude coverage for nation-state attacks. This is part of a trend that's been ongoing for some time, really. Uh, there's been some litigation in the US involving Merck and the uh, picture uh, uh, ransomware strain in 2017, which led to a number of insurers to change their policy. And in some respects, they're aligning the offline and the online world. So just as they won't pay for acts of war and terrorist attacks in offline policies, then in some respects, the Lloyds uh, uh, decision will align the online world with that. Now, of course, it won't cover all insurance policies. There are some insurance policies that don't touch Lloyds, but I think it will be a general trend across the market. As I say, it is a trend since at least 2017. The policy wording's got tighter. And of course, it comes at a time when organisations are facing other strains as well. As a general rule, it's harder to get cybersecurity policies than it was even two years ago. And the excess on those policies has increased as well. So you're generally paying significantly more money for less cover. And that's even if you can get insurance, some organizations are having real challenges with getting cover. And usually insurers are asking more questions about cyber security stance uh, before they will even uh, sign people up. And I think it also has a couple of other ramifications that people aren't talking that much about yet, but I think are worth uh, uh, you know mentioning. First of all, I think that for a lot of organisations, their knee-jerk reaction whenever they have a cyber attack, whenever it becomes public, is to say it was a sophisticated, zero-day nation-state attack. And I think they're probably saying that. Most of them are saying that because they're scared of Matt Kelly. Some of them are saying that because they're scared of other journalists giving them a hard time over their cybersecurity processes. And they think if we say it's zero-day, sophisticated and nation-state, all in one sentence, then people have some sympathy with them and regard them as the victim rather than the people whose data has been lost. And I think in many of the cases that we're involved with, it's sort of not really that credible to say, sophisticated zero-day nation state. Uh, I um, spoke at a conference recently with somebody who had some stats, which I wish I could remember, but it's something like 76% of reported ransomware incidents are down to 21 simple fixes that people haven't done. So they haven't updated their operating system, or they haven't updated a particular type of software, and these exploits, technically called in the trade CVEs, these you know twenty-something are responsible for the majority of ransomware attacks. So usually, this zero-day nation-state sophisticated is a lie anyway. But of course, now corporations are potentially in that. Uh, talking themselves out of cover situation because the more credibility they give to the people who are attacking them, then I think the more likely insurers are to investigate declining coverage as the terms change to exclude nation state attacks. And I think one of the other implications that people haven't yet thought through is simple cash flow. Most insurance policies are written on a reimbursement basis. So you've got to sort of suffer the loss, submit your receipts, and then the insurer pays you back. We've already seen that be an issue with um, uh, Insanco, the law firm, for example. They say that they had a cyber attack on their systems. They say that that cost them 4.9 million sterling in that attack, and they said that the insurance payout would probably be 12 months later. As a result, they had to go back to the stock exchange and fundraise to fund that gap. Their shares dropped 50% because they went back to the market and tried to raise that money. So for many organizations, cash flow will be fatal in a cyber attack because insurers only pay on a reimbursement basis. And if they say silly things like sophisticated zero day, they'll stretch that 12-month repayment window to 24 months or 18 months or whatever that might be with insurers investigating whether it was nation state and whether it's an insurable risk. So I think it isn't just a development for the sort of insurance nerds. I think for compliance officers, there's a number of steps they've got to take, really. I think, first of all, look at the security measures that are in place. Some organizations look at insurance as an alternative to protection and that just isn't the case anymore you can't just pass that risk on to insurers firstly because they might cover you secondly if they do it's going to be expensive and thirdly even if they do cover you they might not pay out if you have an attack so you've got to look at your insure you've got to look at your security stance you've got to try and prevent attacks happening and when attacks do happen you're going to have to have rehearsed them and coordinate, I think, much better with the crisis management team, with the crisis communications team, with the corporate communications team, and not just, you know, dish out this trope of it being uh, a sophisticated nation state zero day attack, because that might come back to haunt you as well. And then I think, uh, I, again, the, the the other bit of the uh, compliance officer's role possibly is to look at the financial wherewithal of the organization. So not only can it survive a cyber attack, but if it survives a cyber attack, can it ensure uh, that it can survive that cash flow gap, if you like, that caught uh, in and Co out recently in its uh, uh, July um, going to the market for, for cash. So, I think it's got much wider implications than you uh, than you might first think, and it'd be interesting to see. By the way, the new rules come in thirty first March next year, but my expectation is that many new policies will have a flavour of this new rule ro- uh, rule from from here on out.
0: Matt, do you have a question or comment for Jonathan?
1: I I do have a comment. First off, thank you,
3: Jonathan, for your kind words about me. And I will hold true to them and give companies a hard time now because I think you are spot on with what you were saying. Um, One thing that comes to mind as I was listening to you, I was actually thinking of the Hanes brand cybersecurity attack that they announced in May that they had one and then they filed their quarterly report uh, in early August, where they announced that this attack uh, was, it disrupted their customer fulfillment operations for three weeks and cost them roughly $100 million in lost sales. That's what Haynes estimated. That was roughly equal to 6.2% of total sales they had expected. And then they got a million less. So this was a 6.2% hit to revenue from a single ransomware attack is just if you look at what happened with Hank that their fulfillment center capabilities were knocked offline if that happened in the real world it would be equivalent to a bunch of thugs changing the locks on your warehouse and your loading docks and then management couldn't get those locks open for another three weeks if that happened there is no way an insurance company would say oh yeah, we are absolutely going to pay your business interruption insurance claim. The insurance firms would say, you are morons. How did you let this happen? You had a material weakness in your inventory control. We're not going to pay for that. That dynamic is perfectly valid. And I do think we're going to see it more and more often in the cybersecurity world. And lastly, your point about how most companies might say this is a zero-day exploit from a nation state and it's sophisticated. Also, I agree, that is not true. Most cybersecurity attacks are pretty simple phishing attacks where the employee gets duped into coughing up the access controls, and then we're off to the races. But if your employees keep falling for these attacks, you could say that is a material weakness in your cybersecurity training Uh and your control environment. And then I could see Lloyds and other insurers for cyber policy saying, no, we're not going to pay for that because your training stinks and you've got a bunch of knuckleheads who are falling for every scam that comes along. These are the sort of questions that are going to come to the in years to come, and people will need to think about it because it is not going
0: away
1: yeah i think that's a really good point and i think we need to get away from buying anti-fishing training as a commodity too many corporations i think buy on cost and that means that they teach people in the organization about Nigerian Princes and not to click on emails from Nigerian Princes because that was the risk when the lowest cost courses were developed, because a lot of them are old and stale and teach people about the wrong risks. But if you look at the risks that, you know, as you rightly say, phishing attacks mutate all the time. You know, the one I dealt with last week was a uh, monkeypox. You know, you uh, the corporation has decided to get everybody vaccinated against monkeypox who's traveling. Please organize your appointment. They're really good at at getting into people's um, psyche and giving them immediate events that they have to respond to, et cetera, et cetera. So if your training is three years out of date, there is no way that you can respond to the latest events. So I think organizations are going to have to m- look much better, particularly at phishing training. And, and obviously, you know, just as you get smart, criminals get smarter, things like watering hole attacks, bypassing MFA. A lot of these attacks come from the theoretically possible to the absolutely it's happening in maybe a 10 day window now and and so organisations have got to make sure that their trainings fit for purpose and i absolutely agree with you that i think we're going to see insurers denying cover on the basis that people have been you know uh penny penny pinching along the way
0: Jonathan i have a couple of questions for you first is a technical legal question the second uh Uh, perhaps a little more strategic Uh, question number one who's the burden of proof uh, if the carrier denies coverage based upon an attack
1: yeah i think that's a really interesting question and it seems to me that uh, i think we're going to have litigation on this from what i believe there have been two cases in the us as i say one involving merck on uh, not petcher there's another one i believe i think with wanna cry. And I think different courts have almost come to different conclusions. It, it seems to me that um, that that conventionally, I think the burden will be on the uh, the insured to say that they're within cover of the policy. And I think a lot of these things are going to end up being, truly difficult. You know, attribution with ransomware, for example, is not an exact science. The cases that I've been involved with, it usually involves somebody really expert in the field taking a sample of the code that's locked down the system, dropping that sample into a sort of code library, if you like, and saying, well, this looks similar because... And then they'll have a provisional attribution to Gang X, Gang Y, Gang Z. But the issue with that, of course, is that these gangs aren't sort of stable gangs. They're loose alliances of criminals that form and disband. So even if you can prove that the code was last seen with Gang X, you can't necessarily prove that your attack is from Gang X because a member of Gang X might have left and and taken, if you like, their precedence with them. So just as lawyers take their precedent bank from law firm to law firm when they move, well, so do ransomware attackers. They take their code, they take their ransom note, uh, email or, or screenshot or whatever that might be. I think we're going to see a lot of litigation over attribution. I think we're going to see a lot of litigation over burden of proof. And I guess one of the other messages of that will be to look at the quality of the insurer who's insuring you as well. I think some insurers are more likely to give people a hard time, particularly when they've written more policies than they should have. And, And in some respects... In the past, I think, when insurers have asked tough questions before they write the policy, people have thought, well, then I'll switch to a different insurer. That might not be the right strategy because it might be that the insurer who's asking you the tough questions at inception is more likely to pay because they've looked at the risk uh, more, um, more maturely before writing the policy than some of these Johnny-come-lately insurers who get into the market, drop the premiums, make it easy, and then then try and renege on the policy once there's an, a, an event.
0: And uh, actually, I want to go hyper-technical now. Do you think Munich, Swiss, and uh, um, uh, Zurich RE will follow form on this as well in the reinsurance market?
1: Yeah, personally, I do. I think that it will uh, go across the market, really. I think that it'll be, a, 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 you know, if you like, a signal that that nation state is probably going to come off cover. Maybe just maybe you'll get some specialist insurer somewhere who will offer cover uh, for that, just as you can still get, you know, specialist insurance for executives traveling to Africa against physical ransoms. But I think that'll be a very, very small part of the market. And obviously, the premiums for that type of cover, I think, are going to be, I'd expect, would be be pretty enormous. And so I think the Lloyds announcement is an evolution, not a revolution. I think the market's been headed that way, as I say, at, at least since 2017, I think.
0: Jonathan Marks, you have a question or comment for Jonathan Armstrong?
4: Yeah, I just I just have a general comment. You know, if you look at the risks that are being banded around at the boardroom level, you know, specifically cyber risk, you know, and you're looking at a duty of care and duty of loyalty, shouldn't you be asking who's filling out the application to apply for insurance? Uh, because in my experience, I remember the applications originally, there were eight questions on there. And the person that actually knew anything about IT infrastructure, data security and privacy, was not the one that was filling out that form. So I just wonder, You know you talk about coverage being denied and all these other things that potentially could happen it's going to happen at some point to somebody right um i just wonder whether the board actually taking a strong enough stance in their oversight role and actually asking that tough question who is who is filling out this thing and are they getting the right information being provided back to them so that they can make informed decisions i bet not
1: yeah i think that's a really great point and i i know for a fact that in some cases the right person hasn't been filling out that uh, that uh, policy. Um, you know the, the 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 coverage application for want of a better word. Too often people don't involve the CISO. They don't involve the CIO. I've seen a case where, um, for example, they've ticked the box to say yes, multi-factor authentication (MFA) is across all of our systems, and it wasn't oftentimes people answer the questions for their own uh, IT environment, but forget the fact that all of their HR data is in an HR provider in the cloud, all of their payroll data is in the cloud. And and to answer a lot of the questions in the proposal truthfully, you're going to have to drill down into what those suppliers do uh, with data as well. And increasingly, we're seeing Uh, People suffer from big ransomware attacks because their suppliers have been compromised, not their own network. You know, if you look at things like SolarWinds, if you look at the attack on time clocking systems in, uh, um, you know, November, December time, which I think hit the majority of the Fortune 500, one vendor being attacked can cause near chaos across uh, the whole of, um, of of industry. So I think we're going to see, you're right, we, you're going to have to get the right team to fill in the proposal form. And maybe that's something that you also consult your crisis management team on as well so that you've got that holistic oversight that you know the people who are going to have to manage the crisis know what the insurance cover is and, and both of those processes can inform each other. But certainly the CISO needs to be involved.
4: Yeah, and I think just one more point here. Um, you know, we, we all talk about cyber risk, but the other thing that also comes into play here is staffing risk. And since people are leaving organizations left and right, is in, in the IT area, for other things, I think, again, from an oversight perspective, someone could be asking a tough question. Are we playing this game without a shortstop in the second basement? And if we are, who's covering them? And if they're not, what are we doing about it? And I, you know, I see many organizations that are. I mean, go look online; they're all advertising for people in the IT world. You know, and I, I talk to my my buddies, my friends, my colleagues, and they're all they're all clamoring because they just don't have the right talent in house to do this. So, you know, uh, it, it's a, it's a mess.
1: I, I think that's a great point as well. One of the just just quickly because i know we're short of time but one of the most interesting ransomware attacks i did last year the uh, chief information officer just said i'm not the right guy to lead the response Uh, and and basically said in, in not many more words than this i'm i'm really good at good times but this is bad times and so so the the great thing was because he was really honest and candid up front, rather than pretending. We we managed to hire somebody in who was a bad times CIO, mm-hmm. and they worked in parallel, and he did business as usual, of which there wasn't much business as, as usual. But we got a guy who's an experienced incident commander who, and, and they worked really well side by side. And, and I know it was a sort of career defining moment for the CIO to put his hand up in the biggest crisis the corporations faced and say, I haven't got the skills to manage this. But I think his honesty turned, you know, uh, what could have been a fatal event for the corporation into something that they survived and if he hadn't done the honest thing and had have soldiered on, we would have found out in 72 hours that he wasn't the man for the job, but by then it might have been too late.
4: Yeah, I I agree with everything you said, and I think we're doing our audience a great service today by actually bringing these things to light. You know, Matt's comment about Haynes, you know, if you read that case, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Um, Not only did they have uh, an incident, but then they had one shortly after that as well, so, you know, it's, 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 it's a mess and it needs to be controlled. And I don't think, you know, there's one solution here. I think it's a, you know, I think it's a planned attack and it's something that has to be persistent and
0: ongoing. All right, Matt Kelly, what is on your mind?
3: Oh, I am going to talk about Twitter today and we could certainly talk at length about uh, the whistleblower complaint, that was shotgunned around the world and around the internet at the end of August from Twitter's former head of security, a man uh, formerly named uh, Peter Zatko, but he is a well-known cybersecurity expert who actually goes by the name Mudge professionally. Uh, Mudge was Twitter's head of security from the end of 2020 until earlier this year when he claims he was fired For trying to bring to the board's attention some pretty glaring cybersecurity issues that uh, Twitter had been suffering through for a long time. Uh, His whistleblower complaint is 84 pages long. I have read most of it. I will read the rest of it. And I encourage everybody listening today if you are at all responsible for cybersecurity or privacy, anything in your company, read his complaint because he raises some very Big substantive issues that are troubling, but he also raises a lot of smaller technical issues about what internal controls he says are not working well at Twitter. That there's really a lot you could learn here. I've already written several posts about it. I'm sure I'll write several more. Um, He filed the whistleblower complaint with the Justice Department, with the Securities and Exchange Commission, with the Federal Trade Commission, with Congress. It has a lot of the same energy as the Facebook whistleblower complaint from I think it was last year with Francis uh, who wound up testifying before like everybody and uh, tying Facebook up in the knots. And the same whistleblower activists and lawyers who represented her also now are working with Mr. Mudge. So here are some of the allegations that Mudge has uh, put out there about Twitter. First off, a failure to have any ability to map out and identify its sensitive data and classify the purposes of it. Um, And that would include personally identifiable information that Twitter knew it had, but it wasn't really able to classify for its employees how you could use PII this way with these users, but not these other users PII, you can't. And that was important because Twitter has been and still is under a Federal Trade Commission consent decree that uh, you cannot use users PII for ad purposes unless they consent to it. Uh, then some said you know, they provided PII for security and safety reasons, but not for advertising. And Twitter, according to Mudge, couldn't make that distinction. And so took a lot of users PII for security purposes and without their consent, used it for advertising failure number one. Failure number two, uh, the company had no effective policies and procedures to manage insider threats. And that would include no effective bring your own device policies. So you could bring your own device to work and it would be larded up with what sort of data or systems that were now being accessed or had access to Twitter. They couldn't tell. Um, Mudge says that Twitter lacked an ability to prevent employees from turning off the security software at their workstation. So, even if you uh, used your work device at work and it had security measures on it, you, the employee, could turn them off. Um, so, insider threat there. He was alleging that foreign governments forced Twitter to hire spies who then worked on Twitter on payroll. And Twitter knew this, Mudge says, uh, so that they could gain access to confidential information about dissidents in their home countries. Um, And then some of the juicy stuff, because I haven't gotten to the juicy stuff yet. Now, now the juicy stuff um, that current CEO, Parag Agrawal, uh, that he deliberately kept unflattering information from the board about the management team's inability to get improvements made in a timely manner. And in at least one occasion where Mudge had hired an outside audit firm to review the security weaknesses, and then Parag Agrawal, the CEO, and other senior executives intercepted that outside audit firm, said, don't give Mudge the report yet. Delete these unflattering things that we don't want Mudge to see, and okay, now give him this doctor diminished report that keeps all the juicy stuff away from his eyes. Um, So there's all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, that all apparently came to a head in January of this year when Mudge was fired. And he, of course, says it's retaliation. Um, Two things strike me. Well, I mean, a bunch strikes me. But, you know, uh, one thing that was really interesting is that I am not convinced that Twitter's board doesn't have some culpability here. Not that they were deliberately doing anything, but... I think that this is a prime example of how you really need cybersecurity experts on the board. And when I look at the biographies of Twitter's directors, they are all very impressive and accomplished people, but I don't see anything around cybersecurity or system integrity or privacy. I see whiz bang technology and artificial intelligence and other things like that I see very good business development skills. I see a lot of finance skills because they are from major investment banks that might have invested in Twitter at one point or another. But considering the role Twitter plays, you'd really expect it to have at least one or two board directors who are up to their eyeballs in cybersecurity and process integrity expertise. Now I don't see that. Um, the funny thing is, You know, I look at what Mudge is saying, of all people, I think Mudge actually probably would have been better served on the board of Twitter because he could have grilled people about Twitter's cybersecurity weaknesses. And ironically, I think his rather prickly bedside manner with other management teams is probably what made this relationship so fraught at the in-house level. But I bet his demeanor and whatnot would have been excellent in board service because you need board directors who are really willing to call BS on stuff where they think there might be BS. Um, So there was an awful lot of that. Uh, I'll stop there right now. But, you know, we could talk more about specific internal control failures. I think regulators and particularly the Federal Trade Commission, they're going to give Twitter an awfully hard time about what is or is not true in this. Um, but it is a real mess. And for anybody who wants to have a good case study about how do I not screw up cyber in my business, go read his complaint, because even if it is not true, you still have so many thought provoking scenarios to consider and try to avoid at your company. It is well worth your time to read his complaint.
0: Mr. Armstrong, do you have any questions or comments for Matt Kelly?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what Matt says about um, regulators is, is already coming true. Uh, my understanding is that the Data Protection Commissioner in Ireland, who's the lead GDPR regulator for Twitter, has already met with them. I've seen reports that they are trying to line up a meeting with Zatco, and that his team have said that he's open to meeting with them. I think I've not read the uh, his his full allegations, but I believe that both the DPC, the Data Protection Commission in Ireland, and CNIL the French regulator, are mentioned in the report as regulators that allegedly Twitter sought to deceive. There was an investigation into Twitter by the DPC in uh, December twenty twenty, which related to a twenty nineteen. Uh, data breach they were pretty damning on things like response rates from memory in that finding uh, the fine was relatively low 450 000 euros my guess would be that there's some thought of reopening that investigation there's uh i i don't know the specific law in ireland but of course there are potentially criminal offences if you mislead regulators and that leads to a different regulatory outcome. And I believe, though I may be completely wrong, that the area of investigation for CNIL is in connection with its cookie suite. So you might remember that there have been big fines from CNIL, uh, 60 million euros for Facebook, 150 million euros for Google I'd be surprised if Twitter weren't part of that original sweep. Maybe somebody at Twitter may be told Canil different things about their use of cookies. It would seem slightly surprising that they weren't using cookies to the same extent as Facebook and Google were. Uh, And I know that Canil are anxious to meet with Zach his representatives uh, as well. So I think things are moving pretty quickly on this side of the pond as well. And I guess, you know, as ever, regulators read the press as well. So this is likely to have ramifications, as I said, from what I understand, the DPC are already on the case and and more difficult conversations with regulators on this side of the pond as well, I think.
3: You know, one thought. I did have was yeah I certainly I see why privacy regulators would be all over this, but I think that for most people, uh, the primary risk really that we have to worry about is that some world leaders account could be hijacked and then they are spreading disinformation that could lead to some sort of calamitous event. And that is not far fetched because Twitter suffered a hack in 2020, where the accounts of Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and dozens of others, that it was hacked. And those attackers were just using it to hawk Bitcoin payments or some stupid thing. But one could very easily see that a failure of process integrity would allow um, somebody to take over an influential world leader's uh, account. And then they publish, I don't know, that Vladimir Putin's invasion of Russia is off or he's going to start using nuclear weapons in Ukraine or Donald Trump is going to encourage his extremist followers to bomb FBI offices around the country. None of those scenarios, if they actually happened, I don't think people would be very surprised, except for maybe Putin calling the war off. Um, yeah. But what regulator would be in charge of that? And what would be the enforcement over that? I mean, that's not a privacy breach it strikes me as weird for the sec to say, well, that's a disclosure failure for investors. Like who cares? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the inability to have sufficient control over your, the, the service you offer to people that could therefore lead to real damage in the physical world. Like, I'm still stuck on what regulator enforces that under what statute, what's the right penalty and I don't know, but this is not a thing that's going to go away, a question that's going to go away in my mind.
1: No. You could even hack Elon Musk and say really stupid things on his Twitter account.
3: He could announce yet again that he's going to back <laughs> off of Twitter or buy it or I don't know what he's doing this week But we ain't done yet. But that's the sort of issue that i it falls between the cracks, I think, of enforcement here, and I don't know what the right answer mm. is.
0: Jonathan Marks, do you uh, have something for us? I want to do my best Adrian
4: Cronauer, but I'm not going to do the dan, 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 or say good morning Vietnam, but I am going to say, you know, good day, board of directors. Hey, wake up. You know, Matt talked about the guy from Twitter, you know, the CEO bagging the report. Guess what happens? It happens in our world all the time we do investigations they don't like the outcome all of a sudden that investigation disappears you do a special assignment or a risk assessment they don't like what's in the report that report disappears i can sit here and honestly tell the audience today that that's happened to me more than 10 times in my career where we've gone in done work identified risks exposed the company and things have gotten buried one one in one particular instance, the general counsel buried a report. When she left, they found it in her top drawer, and she had never even told the board, directors, or anybody else what the results of that that project was. So, you know, again, boards, wake up! You're paying consultants to do things. Yeah, where were those reports? What's going on? Why is you know why isn't any information coming through? I mean, this should be a wake up call to everybody. I mean, I can't imagine, Matt, for the life of me, that if that CEO um, at Twitter uh, I can't say his name, so I'm not going to say. It. Um, that CEO at Twitter did this. I can't imagine that others haven't done the same. And then my last comment here is, with regards to the board of directors and having the requisite skills, guess what? It's okay to hire a board advisor. Go out and find people that are specialists that can break these things down into bite-sized morsels that can explain these things to you so you can make informed decisions. If you can't go find somebody that has the requisite skills, go hire someone that can actually help you. I mean, it's, this is not rocket science, but it appears to me, everybody wants to stick their head in the sand these days.
0: Well, on that note, we are actually to Jonathan Marks. So Jonathan, uh, what do you have for us this week? Or do you need a moment to uh, decompress? No, I'm good. I mean, uh,
4: you know, by the way, if you don't read radical compliance, you're missing out. Matt writes some great stuff and, um, he's got some really great insights. I mean, he really, he truly does. So for those of you out there that are not familiar with, uh, what Matt puts out, it's gotta be part of your repertoire. I think I've said that a couple times, but you know, Tom and I were talking about the role of internal auditor specialists or anybody or risk specialist regards to mergers and acquisitions, you know, um, MA activity has obviously picked up over the past, you know, couple of years. It's kind of slow now, but the biggest thing that I see here from an internal audit perspective, or quite candidly, from a pre-acquisition and post-acquisition perspective, is remediation. That's another thing that Matt talked about um, when we're talking about today in regards to cyber. You know, if there's a remediation plan or plans of getting people on systems or remediating gaps or internal controls, you can't just call them up and say, hey, is this done? You actually have to go out and test to make sure that those things are actually operationalized. So the biggest mistake that I see is that, you know, this whole concept of trust to verify, there's the trust part, but the verification part is always missing. From a pre-acquisition perspective, you know, you should be identifying sort of the, the game plan on how these organizations are going to be integrated. You know, you should be looking at culture. Culture is a big deal these days and has been for a long time, at least since the beginning of the time, you know, based on my estimation. So, you know, are the cultures clashing? You know, what's going on? I mean, the... Depending on different parts of the world, you know, are they going to be receptive to sort of a new way of thinking? Are they on the same system? Are they on different systems? You know, do they have the right controls? Do they have a plan in place? What do their contracts and agreements look like? I mean, internal audit should really be asking all those questions. You know, and if if work or testing can't be done pre-acquisition to see what the compliance program really looks like um, or what some of these risks look like post-acquisition, it should be done. It's actually a requirement um, for some. But, you know, phoning this stuff in and saying, hey, I know we had a remediation plan. Can you give me an update over the phone? You know, I don't care whether they're in a COVID environment or not. You have to go out and test. You have to find a way to test. Uh, you can't just let these things linger. And, uh, you know, remediation is a big deal. I remember when Sarbanes-Oxley came into play when everybody was running around in 20, you know, 2004 you know, after it had been enacted in in 2002, you know, everyone had a remediation plan and the remediation plan should be something that was documented, it was tracked, it was followed, they used to call them gap trackers, I think they still call them that today, but we just didn't phone that stuff in. We didn't say, you know, have you remediated your cybersecurity weaknesses? We went out and we tested those things. Have you remediated, you know, your contract process or your procure to pay process? You know, it, it, these things were not phoned in. You have to do the tough work. You have to go out there. You have to talk to people. You have to test. You just can't take people's words um, as, as the gospel and just sign off on something as it's being done. That's what I see is really burning organizations these days. Now, again, it goes back to uh, bandwidth and resources. If you don't have the bandwidth and you don't have the resources, go find someone that can go help you. Find someone that can tuck in, find a specialist that can you know, sit there and explain things to you so that, you know. again, you're minimizing your risk and your exposure. But you know, internal audit has really come a long way, I think, over the last 20 plus years. But I still think sometimes our level of skepticism and the fact of the matter is, you know, quite candidly, you know, um, the level of trust really is, is, is something that needs to be checked and it needs to be checked at various levels. And, you know, internal audit has to, re, you know, you know, keep itself independent. And so, you know, again, shout out to the board again. If you're an audit committee chair, you should be asking your internal auditors, hey, we just did an acquisition. What are we doing from a post-acquisition perspective? What's the game plan? When are we going out? What are we testing? You know, when are systems going to be integrated? Because I'm telling you right now, you know, a lot of times when, when I do an investigation, or I get called in to do a special project, it's because those things just did not happen. And so, you know, they say, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth whatever. Uh, I think here it's just being smart and making sure that those things are actually planned and they're done um, and like I said, if there's if there's a resource constraint, go out and find people that can help you. There's plenty of folks out here, you know, including myself and 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 and, and others that can certainly you know chip in and, and get you where you need to be.
0: Jonathan, you write and talk about skepticism quite a bit and remind auditors to be skeptical. Skeptical. What is skepticism in your view for an internal auditor? Trust but verify. Oh.
4: I think it's way more than trust and verify. I think skepticism is one of those things where you have to, you have to have some level of self-awareness, um, and you have to be able to, in every single engagement that you work on, start from a blank slate. You can't start with, okay, fine. You know, we know these people, we trust these people as soon as you have that baked into your thinking, you know, the level of detail that you're going to get into or the fact that you can get lulled into things really does come into play and so, you know, for me, you know when we talk about skepticism, it's you know, it's way more than trust and verify. It's looking at all the entire situation. It's not taking, you know, a, a simple answer, you know, yes or no answers at face value. It's really looking at evidence. You know, we talk about everything being grounded in evidence. You know, what can you show me? What can you prove to me? You know, you know, how does this all come together? Does this make sense from a big picture perspective? You know, how do you have proper skepticism if you don't understand the business? You know, how do you know what's supposed to be between the goalposts? You don't. And so, you know, I think skepticism is a process. It's almost like, you know, getting prepared to go out um, you know, on, on Sunday. That have got footballs here again. Um, to go out on Sunday and play a game. You know, most of those athletes just don't run out on the field cold and play the game. They stretch. You know, they go to the training room. They do all that kind of good stuff. Well, you know, us forensic accountants, when we stretch, um, it should be the skepticism stretch, you know um you know have we reset our expectations you know what does this look like what do we need to do when we go in there so you know i think it's a lot more than just trust but verify i think it's also making sure that your team if you have a team working for you you know they go in there with that same similar mindset because you know if a lot of this work is being leveraged down um and you're relying on you know your staff people to report into you if they don't have that same level of skepticism that you have you know you might not be getting the truth the whole truth so You know, again, I think it's more of a process. I think it's something that we don't do a lot of training on. I think we should. Um, But, you know, it's definitely a problem. It's it's definitely something that I
0: continue to write about and I'm very passionate about. Jay Rosen, what is on your mind today?
2: Thanks, Tom. It's um, September 2nd when we're uh, taping or we're recording this episode. And there were a couple stories last week about SEC whistleblowers that I wanted to bring to everyone's attention. Uh, The first one was written by Menke Sun and it's entitled, SEC Whistleblower Awards Might Have a Revolving Door Problem. Over the past several years, the SEC's Whistleblower Awards Program has been championed by lawyers and politicians for offering powerful incentives for tipsters to come forward. A new study, however, finds that almost a quarter of the SEC Whistleblower Awards have gone to law firms with attorneys who have close connections to the regulator potentially deterring other whistleblowers from coming forward. The SEC has awarded more than $1.3 billion to 281 individuals through the whistleblower program, which started in 2011. The program was established by the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act and gives whistleblowers an award between 10 to 30% of amounts generated through the monetary penalties if the TIPs result in successful enforcement action and fines exceed over a million dollars. Even though the SEC Whistleblower Award Program has been applauded for its success in directing and investigating wrongdoings, the private unregulated industry of whistleblower attorneys may be distorting the program's goal to encourage more whistleblowing. This comes to us in recent research by Alexander Platt, an Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kansas Law School. The paper argues that a disproportionate share of awards is going to concentrated groups of, quote, well-connected repeat players, unquote, who may be using their connections to help their clients' claims. Using SEC data from the awards issued between 2012 and 2020 that was that were obtained through Freedom of Information Act, the study shows that about 23%, almost one quarter of the data or 30 actual incidences, went to law firms with at least one attorney who had a connection and was a former SEC official. Jordan Thomas, an attorney who helped establish the SEC Whistleblower Program, and now at law firm SEC Whistleblower Advocates, PLLC, says it's a single dominant revolver, according to the study. Mr. Thomas, during his time working for the law firm Labattine and Souchereau, was responsible for rather for ten awards in the studies database, accounting for about 20 percent of the dollars awarded to the studies, about 152.6 million. Tipsters represented by lawyers significantly outperform unrepresentative ones, and repeat player lawyers outperform first timers, which is not surprising. The SEC doesn't publicly name whistleblower identified cases when they announce an award or say the whistleblower has legal representation. Some whistleblower attorneys may publicize that certain awards went to their clients without disclosing names as part of their marketing efforts. Overall, the chance of winning an award is slim at less than 0.54%, considering the SEC has received a total of 52,430 tips between August 2011 and this September. Mr. Platt said the opaqueness of the process, such as the lack of disclosure about whether an attorney represented the whistleblower and how much fees the attorney charges, has created an unfair playing field. He said that attorneys tend to charge high fees up to 40% of the award without regulation. There are some reasons to worry that attorneys are exploiting some special connections and access that only they have because of their prior rules. Some whistleblower attorneys rebutted the study's findings and questioned the motives of the study, including its funding, Mr. Platt said. The idea that there is a small cohort of whistleblower attorneys and advocates controlling the SEC is preposterous, said Siri Nelson. She's the executive director of Washington, D.C.-based National Whistleblower Center. With the SEC whistleblower program, staff being overwhelmed with the number of tips they receive, whistleblower attorneys help individuals vet their claims and report to various agencies. With more more agencies such as the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network setting up their own cash for tips programs, we need attorneys to help them reach out to the agency. It's intimidating sometimes that whistleblower attorneys are the only ones Hold hands. Rebecca Katz, who leads the law firm of Motley Rice LLC's SEC whistleblower team, has worked at the SEC's enforcement division, said the study does not portray the industry accurately. She said the field is competitive and lawyers who market get more clients. She thinks that the rotation from the SEC to the defense bar is a much bigger program. And here's just a smaller article that also came out last week. This is from our good friend Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal, Risk and, and Compliance Journal. And Dylan writes that the SEC modifies two whistleblower changes to reverse policies from the Trump era. The SEC, responding to concerns voiced by advocates, voted last Friday to remove a limit on whistleblower awards that was set during the Trump administration. The change by the Democratic-majority SEC eliminates Wall Street regu- regulators' ability to deny to awards to tipsters who might otherwise be eligible for a payout from another agency. The vote reverses a change made to the whistleblower program in 2020 when the SEC was led by Chairman Jay Clayton, a political independent who was appointed by Trump. On Friday, the SEC also voted for a second amendment clarifying that the commission has the authority to consider the dollar amount of potential awards, but only for the purpose of increasing a payout. The move will give whistleblowers additional comfort that the SEC won't reduce an award simply because it's large, uh, according to Chairman Gary Gensler, a Republican who was recently nominated by Biden. The Second Amendment clarifies language changes made to the award programs during the Trump administration. Mr. Gensler last year said that the SEC would pause enforcing the two Trump era modifications. The SEC's Tips for Cash program was created under the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act. And as I said earlier in these remarks, The statute allows whistleblowers to receive rewards of up to between 10 to 30% of any fines leveled by the SEC. The largest awards have at times raised skepticism from some quarters of Wall Street. For their part, whistleblower attorneys who stand to make a cut of any successful tip have argued that the big payouts motivate whistleblowers who are high-ranking, well-compensated Wall Street executives. Stephen Cohn, a whistleblower lawyer who has also founded the National Whistleblower Center, a nonprofit that advocates for whistleblower protections, said he welcomed the latest amendments. The change regarding the related enforcement actions by agencies other than the SEC was particularly important, he said. Under the amendment made during Mr. Clayton's tenure, the SEC could deny a whistleblower an award if the information was covered by another agency's program. Some award programs offer very small payouts compared to the SEC, Cohn said. The new SEC rules uh, allows whistleblowers who are eligible for awards from multiple programs to pick the larger of the two. This is a big win for whistleblowers in the public, Mr. Cohn said. So I think put together, uh, taking a look at these revised rules and taking a look at the revolving door just really points out the importance of the SEC whistleblower Activities and what we've seen over the past several years.
0: Tom, Matt, you have a comment for Jay?
3: Uh, just a quick comment. Um, number one, I'm not necessarily sure that the revolving door that may or may not exist, or these high prices that whistleblower lawyers might charge when they get a award. Like, I I don't necessarily know that that's a problem. Um, first and foremost, what do we want is a healthy ability for whistleblowers to root out corruption. The only real issue I see is that the SEC doesn't have enough staff to um, review these complaints in an expeditious manner. But anybody who's upset that a whistleblower's lawyer gets to take home, say, 33 or 35% of the payout, like, guys, that's the job. Lawyers, uh, you know, class um, litigators have personal injury lawyers, whatnot. 33% is pretty much an industry standard from what I've always heard. And so you only get that if you win. So, okay, big deal. And anybody who thinks that there is any sort of conspiracy, that this regulation exists really just to give SEC lawyers a full employment act after they leave the agency and there's a secret club, and enough with that nonsense. The SEC is not organized enough to pull off any sort of a secret anything. Never mind the fact that these are very talented and competent people who labor with too little pay and too much work to do a good job, but there's no conspiracy here. There's no pipeline to make everybody self-enriched or enough of that nonsense. The only problem we have is there's not enough staff at the SEC to review these whistleblower complaints in a timely manner so that the whistleblowers feel safe and have a good avenue that they can take their cases and their allegations to get them reviewed. That's it.
2: It it might've been a a dog days of August story.
0: (laughs) Well, above beyond the dog days of August, this is one of the most inane conclusions I've recently seen. It's absolutely asinine to say that Jordan Thomas uh, somehow has an inside track with the sec. The reason Jordan Thomas has so many awards is because number one, he has quality information that his whistleblower has. Number two He understands how the system works, so he presents it to the SEC in a format that they can use it, not simply to intake it, but actually have a um, successful enforcement action, because it's not whether or not the whistleblowing information is valid. It's whether there is an enforcement action and a bounty paid as a percentage of that enforcement action. To say that lawyers are unregulated is absolutely asinine. Lawyers are regulated by every state they practice in. So the state bar of each state, plus the district of Columbia and Puerto Rico regulate lawyers. So we're all regulated. 40% is the standard amount of pay and there's no opaqueness around that. <clears throat> Anyone who's ever signed a contract or done any legal work knows that's a standard amount of pay. And if that's an antitrust violation, sue the state bar. And finally, to claim that because you have quality information presented from whistleblowers who receive awards is a reason that scares away people with non-quality information, and that's a problem, is perhaps the most inane conclusion uh, of this entire report. So, uh, yeah, have I read this? You bet. Am I channeling my inner Jonathan Marks? Not as much as I'd like to, but I try to make a stab at it. But that's a great segue into our shout-outs and rant sections. We'll keep the same uh, order, starting with Mr. Armstrong.
1: Well, I need special permission from you, Tom, to do a first. I want to give a conditional shout out. And in four hours' time, the BBC will either broadcast or not broadcast the Have I Got News tribute to Boris Johnson's prime ministership. I was fortunate. You know, through the my daughter winning the ballot of being there for the taping of the show. There, it, it, so have I got news for you. For those who are not familiar with it, it's sort of like an intellectual version of Saturday Night Live. Panelists get together, discuss the events of the day, and uh, and the Boris Johnson tribute edition. I can't tell you what went on at the recording, but my prediction will be that the tribute edition will not be a bed of roses for Boris Johnson. And we already believe that there are some in the Johnson administration who'd rather it wasn't broadcast at all. People close to Johnson have been nominated to senior positions in the BBC after the BBC was said to be over critical of the johnson regime they criticized the bbc on the basis of balance but just because somebody is a crook or close to crooks you don't need to balance things by finding somebody else who's close to crooks before you can run the story when the conservative party briefed rightly against Tony Blair for being too close to Bernie Eccleston, the same Conservative Party didn't say, oh, and by the way, you can't run the story where briefing unless you can find somebody in the Conservative Party that's got too close to a Formula One Supremo. That isn't what fair balance is about. Fair balance is about Telling a story fairly. And if somebody's crooked, you tell the story of them being crooked fairly. If somebody's a serial liar, you tell the story of him being a serial liar fairly. So, my shout-out is to the BBC in the expectation that in four hours' time, or actually less than that, yeah, four hours' time, they'll do the right thing and broadcast the programme Largely unedited, as I saw it live on Wednesday night, and it is definitely a conditional shout out. And if anybody from the BBC is listening, I'm sure you have many uh, on uh, on your rolodex. Tom, uh, just fair warning that if you don't live up to my expectations, you'll also be my rant next time we meet.
0: Excellent, Matt Kelly
3: yes i well i'm going to have a shout out this time because i think we have slipped into mini rants throughout the entire previous hour here my shout out actually is to the nasa engineers on the artemis lunar launch uh, for scrapping the launch that was supposed to take place on i think it was monday uh because of leaky fuel lines and they postponed it at least until tomorrow we are on a Friday. They're now hopefully launching on Saturday. Uh, but even then, if they have not yet diagnosed and resolved a leaky fuel line problem and they have to postpone it again, I think they might wind up having to postpone it for several weeks until whatever sort of planetary lunar alignment happens again. Um, but that is a tough call to do. I know everybody wanted the lunar rocket to launch. My son is a big space enthusiast. He's very young and he was very excited. And then he was disappointed to see the lunar launch get delayed. Um, So it's just a reminder that we have to do this and have to take good safety risk management, even when it sucks that you have to do it. I think we all learned that lesson tragically the hard way back in 1986 when NASA turned a blind eye to the space shuttle Challengers. uh, I think it was the O-ring fuel system that they ignored cracks there, which blew up, and then it killed the seven astronauts back in January of 1986. I'm glad to see that the safety-first culture of NASA has now revived and taken root, and it is another reminder that... In an ethics and compliance way, I suppose, or in an internal audit risk management way, you do have to do these things occasionally, even when that really leaves a disappointing feel for a whole lot of people. So thank you to the Artemis people for erring on the side of caution and to get that up sooner or later. But if it has to be later to do it well, then so be it. Jonathan Marks, do you have
0: a shout out and/or rant for us today?
4: Yeah, it's, Matt, I, I don't know if you know this, but when they scrapped the mission and the astronauts went back to their quarters, they actually fed them bluebell ice cream. So, it's kind of <laughs> an interesting, interesting afternoon. But yeah, I, I have a little bit of a shout out. Um, I don't know if you guys have saw, seen this, probably have, but uh, happy birthday to the United States uh, Federal Sentencing Guidelines. Um, yes. and, publishing some interesting things in there. You know, some of this is sort of a blinding glimpse of the obvious, but, you know, they point out not having a compliance program actually affects organizations. But the the more interesting fact, which I thought was really kind of interesting, it says, you know, um, I really really have to check this because it says since fiscal 1992, the overwhelming majority of organizational offenders, 89.6%, did not have any
0: compliance and ethics program. Think about that. That's bizarre. Jay Rosen, do you have a shout out and or rant for us?
2: I have a shout out and I'm gonna kind of ride the, uh, the coattails of uh, Matt on this one. Um, it's another space themed. If humans want to explore Mars in the future, they'll need to create oxygen. Now there's a small device the size of a toaster. <laughs> and it's on the planet and it's doing just that. And a study released this week, researchers from MIT showed that the Mars Oxygen In Situ Resource Resource Utilization Experiment known as MOXIE can make oxygen from carbon dioxide which is abundant in Mars's atmosphere. The experiment part of NASA's Perseverance rover mission that landed on Mars in February of 2021 is the first time resources from another planet have been transformed into something useful for human missions. The small box created by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and MIT makes enough oxygen to match the output of a small tree on Earth and can do it during the day and night during multiple Martian seasons. So kudos to NASA, JPL, and MIT for getting the US space program back in the game.
0: Well, and since we have moved from uh, our typical rants to some shout-outs today, maybe I'll not rant about our beloved governor in the state of Texas, but I will shout-out to the Houston Astros, who, with a record of 84 and 47, have the best record in the American League. They have the second-best record behind the Los Angeles Dodgers in all the baseball. Justin Verlander, 39 years old, is leading the league in ERA and wins at this point. Although he's currently on the injured list, hopefully he'll be back in mid to late September and can continue this streak. Uh, For those who have faulted the Astros for winning with cheating, well, now we're winning without cheating. So that's my shout out to the Houston Astros for the best record in the American League. That's Gentlemen, awesome. as always, a great episode, and I can't wait uh, till we get the whole five quintet back together and our next recording. So, have a great Labor Day weekend, everyone.
4: Take
2: care, Thank you,
4: Bye. Bye. Thanks,
0: everyone. Hey. 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 Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Everything Compliant. We're going to return the first week in September with the full gang back for our fall season. I know you'll enjoy it. I hope you'll check out the next episode of Everything Compliance, which should premiere the first week in September. If you haven't listened to uh, several of the new special podcasts out on the Compliance Podcast Network, I'd ask you to, to take a listen. Under the Greetings and Felicitations podcast, I had two really fun week-long series the first one was the 100th anniversary of ulysses and the second was the intersection of compliance and winnie the pooh so check out one or both of those podcasts if you want to maybe think about taking your program in a different direction through storytelling also check out the podcast on uh, how the world has changed forever Uh, after the Russian invasion of the Ukraine in business on the podcast, Never the Same, where I feature Brandon Daniels from Exeter. Thanks for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again.
4: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business
2: podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.